Welcome to Resilient Faith, a brief history of Presbyterianism. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Jonathan Gose. Uh, I uh, am here because I was called uh, uh, by the uh, session to talk about church history. Uh, I uh, graduated summa cum laude from Shippensburg University, where I studied history, and, and um, since then, uh, actually under Professor Alan Dietrich Ward, and, and since then I've been making a church history my you know, sort of thing. Uh, and, and just studying it and learning more and more. So hope uh, you glean a lot from this. Many of you may be relatively new uh, to Presbyterianism. Uh, my guess is that you know something about John Knox, Presbyterian polity, uh, and uh, something about um, uh, the Westminster Standards. But how did we get here? Uh, some of you may have uh, grown up in the Presbyterian Church, and uh, know deeply of the controversies that surrounded the demise of the Presbyterian Church U.S. and sought to be part of a PCA church because you knew what it meant historically. Uh, others of you may be new to Presbyterianism entirely. You may come from a Baptist, Roman Catholic, or non-religious background. Uh, you, you may have noted parts Presbyterians have played throughout history. Uh, John Witherspoon, signer of the Declaration of Independence and uh, leader <clears throat> of uh, uh, what became Presbyterian, uh, Princeton University, or the eight American presidents that have professed a Presbyterian identity. Andrew Jackson, James Polk, James Buchanan, Grover Cleveland, Benjamin Harrison, Woodrow Wilson, Dwight D. Eisenhower, Ronald Reagan. In either case, it's important to know the history of Presbyterianism because it speaks to the heart of our Presbyterian identity. We see the roots of theology, our practices, the way we relate to other Christians in our community, and we also see God's faithfulness in preserving his church generation after generation. What I hope to achieve in this session is to enrich your knowledge and contribute to the strengthening of a truly Presbyterian church identity uh, through a brief synopsis of key points in Presbyterian history. A brief synopsis will cover Scottish Presbyterianism, Presbyterianism in early America, uh, with a special emphasis on the Carolinas and the impact of revivalism, uh, the American Revolutionary War, the First General Assembly, Old and New School Presbyterianism, uh, and uh, very brief mentions of the post-Civil War period with uh, Northern and Southern Presbyterians split, uh, Machen, the OPC, and the Continuing Church Movement. I also hope to highlight several perennial themes that come up repeatedly uh, for Presbyterians. They are the freedom to worship, uh, the need to hold fast to the sound words we have received in faith, and uh, lastly, the resilience of our faith in adverse circumstances and internal disagreement. Presbyterian history, of course, begins with John Knox. But before I get to him, let me take a moment to describe uh, the kind of world Presbyterianism is birthed in. We are in the very heart of the Reformation. Uh, Martin Luther posted his 95 thesis in the church door in Wittenberg in 1517, and Zwingli began to teach in Zurich in 1519. Both would call into question practices such as indulgences, Lenten fasts, the Mass, uh, the use of images, the Eucharist, purgatory, apostolic secession, and so on. Disagreements were met with fierce debate, imprisonment, persecution, and death. To be a reformer during this time was to put your life on the line. It was to reject the authority not only of the local church or your parish priest, but also to reject the authority of the state in which he resided. John Knox came to embrace the ideas of the Reformation through George Wishart, 
a Zwinglian preacher who came, from, uh, came to Scotland. Knox uh, eventually became his bodyguard and uh, carried in this photo a, uh, oil on canvas, a Scottish claymore to defend him uh, after an assassination attempt. Uh, Wishart's preaching raised the ire of the most powerful man in Scotland at the time, uh, Cardinal Bloody Beaton, who, has taken up, uh, who had taken up residence in St. Andrew's Castle. He had George arrested for heresy and burned at the stake in 1546. By the end of May of that year, a group of rebel Protestants rose up to overtake the fortress of St. Andrews. They murdered David Beaton and they eventually called John Knox to be their pastor. John Knox served faithfully for a short while at St. Andrews, uh, was re but was recaptured, or sorry, but was the, the fortress was recaptured uh, by an alliance of French and Scottish Catholics. Uh, France and Scotland were very aligned at this time. Uh, Knox survived. Knox was enslaved as a galley slave on a French uh, ship. And uh, at this time, uh, he, would stay, he would stay there for 19 months. Uh, the, uh, during this time, galley slavery uh, was a death sentence. Uh, Carl Truman relates in his lectures at uh, Westminster that we actually have evidence of people confessing to crimes that came with a death penalty in order to avoid going to the galley ships. He relates a story of where the French would harass their Protestant captives by forcing them to kiss an image, a statue of the Virgin Mary. Uh, one time it fell into, and he relates this in his um, history, one time it fell into the hands of a Scot, uh, it's probably John Knox, uh, and uh, he looked advisedly about him and threw the image overboard, uh, saying, if Our Lady is so fine, she can swim for herself. Uh, Knox didn't take credit for it, but uh, uh, he, he did write, uh, and afterwards, no Scotchman was ever urged with that idolatry. The fact that he lived to tell the tale is a triumph in itself. Uh, of course, we know that Bloody Mary uh, took over and launched her Catholic counter-reformation in England and forced Knox to flee. Uh, oh, I missed the part, but... He would eventually be freed. Sorry, let me go back. He, he would eventually be free. Uh, Protestant King Edward IV was looking for allies, so he was released in a prisoner exchange. And then after that, he was eventually forced to flee uh, because of the uh, uh, Counter-Reformation. It is uh, in his time of exile that Knox meets John Calvin. Let me go back. Uh, David Calhoun of Covenant Theological Seminary describes it as a period of joy in Geneva. For Knox was delighted to be in that city, which he called the most perfect school of Christ that ever was on earth. Knox made his way back to Scotland in 1599 as the Reformation started to gain more ground and the rule of Mary, Queen of Scots, uh, who was the queen at the time of Scotland, uh, started to weaken. With the help of English Protestant Queen Elizabeth I, an illegal Scottishman, a legal Scottish parliament uh, started to enact laws, and it was during this time that Presbyterianism was born. Now we're ready. <laughs> Knox authored the Scots Confession, the Book of Discipline in 1560. A further book of common church order came out in 1564. After Knox passes away, further statements of faith are made under King James VI in 1581. 
Presbyterianism grows extensively in Scotland, so much so that in 1630, Scotland experiences a revival at the Kirk of Shots, midway between Glasgow and Edinburgh. Communion services among the Scots occurred only twice, once or twice a year. As a result, they became big events, attracting crowds from across the countryside. Services would uh, often take, have to take place outside, where they would last a whole week, usually starting uh, Wednesday or Thursday, communion on Sunday, and a Thanksgiving service on the following Monday. Uh, an itinerant preacher at one of these Thanksgiving services, John Livingston, preached from Ezekiel 16.25, then I shall sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean. And as he preached, it began to rain. And then the, uh, uh, David Calhoun relates that the uh, attendees began to stickle uh, in their discomfort. That was the language of the time. Uh, and Livis then preached at that moment, What a mercy it is that the Lord sifts rain through these heavens on us and does not rain down fire and brimstone as he did upon Sodom and Gomorrah. 500 people marked that day as their saving change. <laughs> Unfortunately, the changes in kingship often led to turbulent changes in church life. Charles I tried to assert the authority of Church of England over now Presbyterian Scotland, which answered in free, fierce opposition uh, and a national covenant of 1638. <laughs> Later in 1643, a solemn League and Covenant would be made uh, with the English parliamentarianism, uh, parliamentarians to infirm faith and justify Scotland's involvement in the English Civil War. Later that year, uh, the Westminster Assembly would meet uh, and uh, produce the Westminster Confession of Faith, larger and shorter catechisms, and uh, that would be attended by a host of Presbyterian ministers from Scotland who were there to help uh, adopt these documents. A few short years later, disaster would strike the Scottish Kirk. The restoration of King Charles II uh, and the Recissory Act of 1660 repealed all laws in Scotland since 1633 and hailed in yet another period of high church Erastianism where the Church of England now was trying to oust uh, Presbyterians. Uh, in addition, Parliament, in an overreaction to the Commonwealth period, demanded in 1666 that the Church of England should have all authority. Unlicensed Presbyterian preaching became a capital offense. D.G. Hart and John Muther explained that the most zealous Presbyterians, who still affirmed the Selim Covenant of 1638, and so went by the name of Covenanters, organized military resistance to this system of religious coercion. The worst of this uh, escalating persecutions of the Covenanters came at the end of Charles II's reign uh, from 1684 to 85, the so-called killing time. In that period, nearly 150 Presbyterians were executed, many without even receiving a trial, uh, for their religious practices, uh, religious practices and open rebellion against the religious and state authorities. <coughs> many fled to Northern Ireland, where Irish Calvinism and Presbyterians had been taken root, but was still under pressure and persecution. Some went to the Netherlands, which had become a haven of toleration. Still others made their way for America, and that is where our story continues. Irish Calvinists first started arriving in large numbers to New England as early as 1636, when 140 of them arrived from Belfast on the aptly named Eagle's Wing. During this time, during the time of persecution, a Carolina company was formed, 
and set up a dedicated, to set up a dedicated covenanter settlement, uh, which they called Stewartstown after the Stuart Kings of Scotland, just north of Hilton Head Island uh, in what is now Port Royal, South Carolina. Of all the uh, Scotland's, quote, uh, of all of Scotland's imperial misadventures in the 17th century, writes historian Peter Moore, none has been more easily forgotten as uh, the story of Stewartstown. Stewartstown started as both a, as a business uh, and Presbyterian religious venture. More comments, quote, it was no accident after all that the company's principal leaders, Sir John Cochran of Ochiltree and Sir George Campbell of Cresnock, uh, were also leaders in the Presbyterian resistance. Uh, or that the subscribers or that subscribers made up a dense network of family, friends, and business associates with a common commitment to Presbyterian independence from, Scot from the Scottish Episcopal Church. Both men came from covenanting families. Cochrane had been arrested in 1678 for attending conventicles, and Campbell uh, supplied the covenanter rebels with arms when they occupied Glasgow in 1679. The defeat at Bothwell Brig, uh, the hardening of Episcopal control and the prospects of a Scottish port in North America, convinced these men that the time was right for a Presbyterian colony. The settlement would last for two years, but support dried up, and an ill-advised alliance with the Yamasee Indian tribe in Hilton End Island uh, basically led the settlement to overplay its hand. Afraid of possible attacks from the Spanish in Georgia, uh, the, uh, they would arm these Indians to go ahead and attack the Spanish mission. Well, they were so effective in, in, in destroying that mission that the Spanish sent an entire contingent of 150 soldiers from St. Augustine, Florida, went up to Stewartstown and leveled it. So that was the end of Stewartstown. <laughs> but despite these failed efforts, Scots did make their way to America in droves. One of these migrants, of course, was Francis McAmey, uh, who is known as the father of American Presbyterianism. He came to America from the British Isles uh, in the early 1680s, and he established a Presbyterian congregation in Snow Hill, Maryland in 1684. As Presbyterians came here and established churches, they arose organically and often independently of groups of settlers as they came together. Uh, one of the, uh, the, the congregation in Snow Hill, in fact, would be uh, Presbyterian in structure, uh, but it would not have a presbytery. So, uh, so, I mean, and that's really how a lot of these early Presbyterian churches were to start. So it'd be Presbyterian churches without a presbytery. So God help us all. <laughs> Make him, he saw the problem. Uh, but both he and another Presbyterian minister, Jedediah Andrews, recognized the need for a Presbyterian form of government and the unity and order it provided. Together, they sought to support, uh, to call a meeting in Philadelphia to bring the independent homegrown Presbyterian churches uh, into, a one, into one polity. Uh, the quest was not without its roadblocks, but in 1706, the first meeting of the Presbytery of Philadelphia took place. Now, despite this meeting, the Church of England was still trying to assert itself as the sole authority for faith and worship. And it was no mistake that the first Presbytery originated in William Penn's tolerant Pennsylvania. <clears throat> the Anglican church authorities sought for tighter controls about who can preach and where they could preach. Uh, this is one of the lessons that Francis McAmey learned the hard way. Uh, D.G. Hart and John Muther related uh, that the very next year in 1707, so after you know, this triumph, 
uh, one of his many travels, uh, on one of his many travels, McAmey he headed north toward New England with John Hampton, one of the Irish Presbyterians, to assist in the work of planting ch Presbyterian churches. When passing through New York, McAmey tried to preach in the pulpit of, du of a Dutch Reformed congregation, but the authorities forbade McAmey from preaching. So he led services in a private home in the city and later a public meeting house. The, three days later, the local sheriff arrested the two Presbyterian ministers for preaching in the colony of New York without a license from the royal governor. About five months of imprisonment and negotiation for a trial by jury uh, would win McAmey's final, uh, final freedom. And this was, of course, despite the fact that by this time, the glorious revolution of William and Mary had already happened, and we had uh, toleration granted officially in the British Empire for dissenters. Didn't, didn't stop the Anglicans for making trouble where they could. <laughs> uh, lasting footholds would be made in Virginia, uh, taxes paid to the Anglican church regardless of religious affiliation, and uh, dissenters were kept under a close watch. In North Carolina, as a royal colony, Presbyterianism officially was deemed illegal by the Lord's proprietor. Presbyterian marriages were not officially to be recognized under law, uh, but that did not deter the Scots from settling in mass numbers or from worshiping anyway. In 1739, 350 Highland Scots made their way to the Cape Fear River Valley area near Wilmington and disembarked. They eventually settled in Bladen County, uh, which would later split up into Bladen, Cumberland, Moore, Robeson, Harnett, and Hope counties uh, near Fayetteville and be, and be known as the Argyle Colony. The colony was granted a 10-year tax holiday, wouldn't that be nice, uh, and thrived, bringing Gaelic language, Gaelic psalmody, and Presbyterianism with them. In subsequent years, the floodgates opened as masses of uh, immigrants made their way from Scotland, Northern Ireland, and the surrounding areas. By the 1770s, for example, about 20% of the population of the island of Skye made it to the Argyle colony and other places. Gaelic became so persistently spoken in North Carolina that the Fayetteville Presbytery, which is the oldest presbytery in North Carolina, held services in both English and Gaelic right up to the Civil War. People left the British Isles for many reasons, but chief among them were famine, high rent, and church taxes. So what did life in the church look like for these early settlers? I had the pleasure of visiting the North Carolina Museum of History a few years ago, and there was an entire exhibit dedicated to the impact of Presbyterianism on the state's history. Among the relics was a catechism of the Book of the Church of Scotland, which was published by Benjamin Franklin in 1745, and communion tokens dating from 1729 to 1860. A member would receive a communion token granting eligibility to receive the Lord's Supper after an examination of his or her knowledge of the Bible and catechisms. Within the church service, congregations were normally seated by age, and the elders were given the best and most comfortable places. Women with little children were seated near the fireplace. Old men were honored with seats near the wall where they could lean back. The young men and young ladies next in front of them and the boys of restless and unruly age were placed in the center where batteries of eyes could play at them from all sides. <laughs> As Scottish and Scotch-Irish settlers made their way into the increasingly remote areas of Appalachia, 
a kind of independent backcountry Presbyterianism developed. Presbyterians in the backwoods would sometimes clash with rival Christian sects, local authorities, Indian tribes, or each other, depending on what vein of Presbyterianism they found themselves in. We know this in part to the pitiful and rather hostile account of the Anglican minister and missionary to Appalachia, Charles Woodmason. David Hackett Fisher relates the story, and I apologize, I must read it in full. In 1766, he packed his saddlebags with prayer books and a pint of rum, and a heavy loaded, like a trooper, rode bravely into the Carolina backcountry to convert the heathen. His self-appointed task was a heavy one, for Woodmason's idea of the heathen was as spacious as the land itself. Embracing Indians, Africans, Presbyterians, Congregationalists, Quakers, Baptists, Irish of any denomination, and even Anglicans of low church opinions. Traveling into the interior of Carolina, Woodmason met a reception which was very mixed, to say the least. Some settlers welcomed him, to, welcomed him to their cabins. Others drove him away by force. One family of us Scottish Presbyterians uh, told him plainly that they don't want no, and I've watered down the language here, darned black gown sons of biscuits among them and threatened to use him as a backlog in their fireplace. Others stole his horse, rifled his clothing, drank his rum, even purloined his prayer books. Presbyterians disrupted his services, rioted while he preached, started a pack of dogs fighting outside the church, stole his church key, refused him food and shelter, and gave him two barrels and gave two barrels of whiskey to his congregation before a communion service. <laughs> After many adventures which might have flowed from the pen of a swift or a fielding, the grand climax came when this missionary fell into an ambuscade uh, and was captured by a gang of old-fashioned border reavers. Now, border reavers were the folks who would uh, live on the frontier of Scotland and constantly be in conflict with the English. They carried him captive to a secret settlement uh, where they lived with their women and children. The clergyman prepared himself for Christian martyrdom. But when he arrived at their cabins, his treatment suddenly changed. To his astonishment, the reavers began to treat him with great civility. They returned his property and promised to restore his freedom on one condition, that he preached a hellfire and damnation sermon, which he heartily agreed to do. Fisher further comments, you know, this, this curious experience uh, expresses a central paradox in backcountry Christianity. It's, an inten it's intense hostility to organized churches and established clergy on the one hand, and its abiding interest in religion in the other. Uh, and I think that's an important insight. insight. Uh, hostility towards organized churches, but at the same time having an abiding interest in religion, I think is a mark of uh, really Christian history in America. It also speaks to the impact of, the, of revivalism. It would be inappropriate to say that revivalism began in America, uh, but that it was transplanted from Europe and flourished. Uh, we've already talked about the 1630 revival of, uh, at the Kirk of Schatz, and 100 years later, American colonies, the American colonies would experience what would become known as the First Great Awakening from the 1740s to the 1750s. When I visited the State Museum, uh, there was a detailed diorama of a uh, camp meeting, which I've got up here. Some Presbyterians called them holy fairs, which, which featured multi-day, impassioned, and emotional preaching. 
D.G. Hart and Muther relate that the characteristic feature of a camp meeting was its outdoor setting. Uh, usually held in the summer, a place that could accommodate several thousand people. These people not only listened to sermons, but also needed a space to camp since the meetings went on for several days. They also held love feasts that some called a feast of fat things, where congregants dined and fellowship together. Some significant figures of the first great awakening in America are the Anglican preacher, of course, George Whitfield, uh, founders of Methodism, Wesley and Charles, or John Wesley and Charles Wesley, the devout Congregationalist, Jonathan Edwards, uh, Theodorus Jacobus Frelinghausen of the Dutch Reformed in New Jersey, and William Tennant Sr. of the Presbyterians. William Tennant Sr. was a former Anglican minister in Ireland who migrated to the American colonies in 1718. Uh, and it wasn't uncommon for former Anglicans to become Presbyterian upon arrival due to all of the uh, issues with being anything but Anglican were back over there. Uh, by 1727, he established Log College for the training of pastors who were interested in a kind of Christianity that found its root not in the historic creeds and confessions of the church, but piety and experience, which at this time would refer to as New Side Presbyterianism in some circles. Among the Covenanters, this type of Presbyterianism would be called New Light Presbyterianism. His son, Gilbert Tennant, was among the most radical and uh, received in awe the preaching of Theodorus Frelinghausen, who had been described as a rambunctious <coughs> Dutch Calvinist minister who had discovered that preaching the terrors of the law was an effective means of awakening sleep, sleepy church members from their spiritual doldrums. <clears throat> Simultaneously, leaders like John Thompson reflected another strange of Presbyterianism among the Scotch-Irish. Scotch Arriving just two years before Tennant, an early moderator of the Presbyterian Church uh, in Newcastle, Delaware, uh, he advocated a more formal and doctrinally precise Presbyterianism and began to advocate subscribing to the Westminster Standards as a requirement for all licensions and ministers in the Presbyterian Church. Old side Presbyterians took issue with the excesses of the, that revivalism that often led to relaxed approaches to church discipline and doctrine. And old siders weren't the only ones who were skeptical. Jonathan Edwards, who is a primary source for this period and um, more sympathetic to the new side, wrote lamentably about what he saw. He said, it is by a mixture of counterfeit religion with true, not discerned and distinguished, that the devil had his greatest advantage against the cause of kingdom of Christ all along hitherto. It is by this means principally that he has prevailed against all revivings of religion that have ever have, have been since the founding of the Christian church. By this he prevailed against New England to quench the love and spoil the joy of her espousals. About a hundred years ago, and I think I have had the opportunity enough to see plainly that by this the devil has prevailed against this late great revival of religion in New England, so happy and promising in its beginning. So the same cunning serpent that beguiled Eve through his subtlety by perverting us from the simplicity that is in Christ that suddenly prevailed to deprive us of that fair prospect we had a little while ago, a kind of paradisiac state of the church of God in New England. Also, a contemporary letter written by a Presbyterian blacksmith in America to elders in the Church of Scotland would describe a revival he visited as an absurd mixture of serious and the comic, filled with scenes of weeping, laughing, drinking, courtship, fainting in the heat, 
One seems devout and serious, and the next moment is scolding or cursing his neighbors or squeezing for squeezing or treading on him. In an instant after, his countenance is composed to the religious gloom, and he is growing, groaning, sighing, sighing, and weeping for his sins. So to try and reconcile the impact of revivalism, the Synod of Philadelphia, which at this time served as a sort of convivium of Presbyterian ministers in 1729, passed a adopting act which affirmed the subscription in the essential and necessary articles of the Westminster Standards. And unsurprisingly, that phrase, essential and necessary, would be interpreted any way that the receiving presbytery wanted to. Uh, this led to a formal spit, split between the old side and new side Presbyterians that lasted, coincidentally, from 1741 to 1758, or when the excesses of the First Great Awakening would come to an end. Uh, indeed, self-reflection and repentance would lead the radical Gilbert Tennant uh, to recant his, quote, recant his vitriolic remarks in one of uh, his earlier revival sermons. This was, his earlier sermon was called The Danger of an Unconverted Ministry, when he said, it is, quote, it is cruel and uncensorious judging to condemn the states of those we know not and to condemn positively, positively and openly the spiritual states of, the, of such as are sound in fundamental doctrines and regular in life. But it would be wrong to declare victory for either side. Old side, new side debates would continue throughout the period and manifest themselves again and again. Tenants Log College, for example, would become the College of New Jersey and later Princeton University. So, I mean, that's a new side college uh, that it was established as which later would become a haven for old, old school Presbyterianism. So lots of ironies in Presbyterian history. Uh, but this is, uh, there is, I think, a good lesson here in how you know, our passions and our zeal for piety can often run away with us and, and the need to hold fast to the sound words that we have received. It's also a good thing that the church became unified once again, too, because of the horror and pain inflicted upon it by the American Revolution. A few years ago, I visited Rocky Spring Presbyterian Church in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. It's maintained by the Daughters of the American Revolution. Uh, and the building was constructed in 1794. It was a pay for a pew church that required members to sign a financial agreement between the trustees of the church and the pew holders, requiring an annual fee for occupancy of the pew. You'd get your name carved it, in it, and there was no dispute uh, over whose seat was whose. Uh, in addition to that, uh, because of the year it was constructed, the engraving also contained the rank the founding members possessed during the American Revolutionary War. Overall, Presbyterians were split on the American Revolution. More than a few Presbyterians from the Cape Fear-Wilmington area, for example, were lo loyalists and moved up to Nova Scotia after the war. But D.G. Hart and Muther relate that for dissenting Pres Protestants, the thought of an Anglican-American bishop did prompt fears of turning the status of American churches into that of nonconformists in England. That being forced to yield to the rights and privileges, that and um, also the possibility of being forced to yield the rights and privileges to worship freely uh, under their own authority. Not the least among these was John Witherspoon, another import from Scotland who accepted an invitation to preside at the College of New England. He was an agreeable candidate <coughs> 
both to the new side for his evangelical viewpoints and for the uh, old side because of his Scottish pedigree. Sean <clears throat> Michael Lucas explains that Witherspoon introduced American Presbyterianism to common, Scottish common sense realism, and his lectures had great effect on uh, one, of the, er, one of his earliest students, uh, James Madison, uh, that would go to undergird a lot of what we see in the U.S. Constitution. Witherspoon would serve on the Continental Congress, sign the Declaration of Independence, <clears throat> and, uh, and also helped to create the first Book of Church Order, which was published in 1788. Uh, indeed, those Presbyterians who did participate in the American Revolution were often outspoken leaders of the rebellion. <clears throat> we know this because of the many words wrote about it. One Hessian uh, soldier, captain fighting for the British, wrote, uh, Call this war by any name that you want to, only don't call it an American rebellion. It is nothing more or less than an Irish-Scotch-Presbyterian rebellion. Hart and Muthier explained that because Presbyterian clergy were outspokenly in favor of the war, and because some served in official capacities in colonial politics, while many others accompanied troops as chaplains, British soldiers often singled them out as ringleaders of the rebellion. This meant that services were often disrupted because of rumors of Hessian soldiers nearby who were intent on capturing the local Presbyterian minister. Other ministers were imprisoned, and stories even circulated of Presbyterian pastors who decided to surrender to enemy troops but were shot and killed uh, despite their pacifistic intentions. Churches were also a casualty of the war, with British soldiers either mistreating a meeting house in the course of their setting up camp, or in a punitive fashion, destroying whatever they can find within a Presbyterian church. In one case, stripping the pews and using them for firewood. Estimates run as high as 50 Presbyterian congregations' church buildings having been destroyed during the course of the war. At the end of the war, uh, the Synod of Philadelphia made a statement. Uh, they said, Had it been unsuccessful, we must have drunk deeply of the cup of suffering. Our burnt and wasted churches and our plundered dwellings in such places as fell under the power of our adversaries are but an earnest of what we must have suffered had they finally prevailed. The Synod therefore requests that you render thanks to Almighty God for his mercies, spiritual and temporal, and in a particular manner for establishing the independence of the United States of America. As a new dawn rose upon the Continental Congress in 1789, so did a new dawn rise among the Presbyterian Church. The first General Assembly was held uh, in what uh, D.G. Hart and Muther call the American, uh, the first General, sorry, let me start again. The first General Assembly held uh, what D.G. Hart and Muther call the American model of Presbyterian government, in clear distinction to the Scottish pattern to vest great power in local sessions and presbyteries, with General Assembly providing a way for churches to organize and conduct their larger affairs and hear and decide complaints sent to it from the local authorities. This reflected the history of Presbyterianism in the New World, which was much more independent than that in Scotland. Scotland would have to deal with the perennial curse of union of church and state, and that would lead to the advent of many splinter groups, including the Associate Presbyterians and the Free Church of Scotland and others. 
It's also at the First General Assembly that Presbyterianism adopts the name Presbyterian Church in the USA. And as often the case with God's church, the harvest was plenty, but the laborers were few. Uh, the church suffered from a chronic shortage of clergy with 177 ordained ministers and 111 licentiates serving 420 congregations scattered across 16 presbyteries, 205 of which did not have a regular minister. Ministering that frontier Presbyterian church was especially difficult. E.H. Gillett tells that a meager salary was given them, for the churches from which the necessary funds were raised were few and feeble. But it sufficed to furnish them with scrip and staff, and thus equipped, they were commissioned to take practical lessons in preaching by itinerating in the wilderness, looking after the scattered sheep, supplying vacant congregations, and addressing such assemblies as they could draw together. It was a rough experience. It required men of energy and vigor, mental and physical, as well as no small measure of self-denying love for the souls uh, to meet it. <clears throat> but no story of Presbyterianism in America would be complete without touching on the Cambridge Revival of 1801. Like the 1630 Kirk of Schatz Revival, this revival would occur at an annual communion multi-day meeting. You can see why there's a problem with that. <laughs> but unlike uh, the Kirk of Schatz communion service, uh, this service would be far, from less, far less uh, than Presbyterian. Uh, Barton Stone uh, was the pastor, and he conducted communion, session, uh, communion seasons according to the Scottish Presbyterian custom, but soon began to include ministers from other denominations. Uh, it became a multi-denominational affair comprised of Baptists, Methodists, and Presbyterians, and a crowd that swelled, at some counts say 20, 10 to 20,000, other counts say 5 to 6,000. It was a large crowd. And uh, a lot of different denominations actually find their root in this revival. Uh, the pastor Barton Stone was a convert during the First Great Awakening uh, by the preaching of the North Carolina revivalist James McGrady, who was a terrors of the law preacher. Uh, Stone, quote, always maintained doubts about Calvinist theology, even raising questions about the teaching of the Westminster Standards at the time of his ordination. Uh, and uh, the excesses that followed were pretty immediate at this uh, revival. One, one spectator wrote, quote, I saw at least 500 swept down in a moment, as if a battery of a thousand guns had been opened upon them, and then immediately followed by shrieks and shouts that rent the very heavens. My hair rose on my head. He continued, my whole frame trembled. My blood ran cold in my veins. I ran for the woods. I probably would too. <laughs> Reminds me of the, some of those videos of Benny Hinn, you know, let the bodies hit the floor. Oh my goodness. Uh, so anyway, uh, pe people come home from, came home from this revival uh, and started making changes and uh, changes and, and challenging, honestly, the doctrines of the church in Kentucky the Cumberland Presbytery would start editing parts of the Westminster Confession uh, to eliminate objectionable language that seemed to teach fatalism or, or the idea that persons were doomed to damnation because of eternal sin and, and those sorts of things. Um, by 1825, even the PCUSA as, as a whole body would, would formally recognize them as an entirely separate denomination, quote, not connected to our body. <laughs> um, they had just gone so far in that direction. Further camp meetings would ferment divisions within the church. 
uh, leading to two distinct camps, that of New School Presbyterianism and Old School Presbyterianism. New School would again emphasize spiritual experience, and Old School would emphasize faithfulness to the confessions and doctrines to the church. One of the most uh, influential figures uh, to come out of the Second Great Awakening and have a lasting impact on the Presbyterian Church is the former sometime Presbyterian minister, Charles Finney. Finney, who started revivals in New York, emerged as a spokesman and celebrity for a period marked by religious fervor and moral crusades. On the one hand, he pleaded with sinners in a way that made it seem a person under conviction as opposed to God was sovereign in the process of coming to faith. On the other hand, Finney believed uh, that the execution of a revival was a scientific enterprise, thoroughly predictable according to the spiritual laws of the universe. He taught in his lectures and revivals of religion, quote, a revival is not a miracle or dependent on a miracle in any sense. It is a purely philosophic, scientific result of the right use of constituted means. Because the doctrines of the church did not feature as important among New School Presbyterians, uh, they would develop what Sean Michael Lucas calls an interdenominational consciousness, uh, which centered around interdenominational activities and benevolent societies and very active social involvement. Over and against Charles Finney, old school Presbyterians such as Charles Hodge wrote and taught passionately against what he deemed to be departures from the reformed system of truth. For instance, when Charles Finney's lectures on systematic theology appeared in 1846, Hodge was quick to pounce, declaring the Oberlin professor to be guilty of bald Pelagianism. He wrote the radical principle of Pelagius' system was that he assumed moral liberty to consist in the ability at any moment to choose between good and evil, or as Mr. Finney expresses it, in the power to choose in every instance according to the moral law. I am running out of time. I got two minutes and multiple slides. <laughs> so I want to relate this one thing. So uh, you'd have the, the seventh church. The, all of this would eventually come to a head in 1837. I'm actually going to end on this. Um, so after a series of recurring spats, things really came to a head at the, uh, basically what happened at the uh, General Assembly of 1837, Presbyterians attempted Old school Presbyterians attempted to get as many ministers as they could to General Assembly to bring the church back. Uh, they had got enough votes to do away with the plan of union, which happened in 1801. That was uh, to bring together Congregationalists into the fold of Presbyterianism. They also adopted a statement that specified 16 doctrinal errors uh, and officially excinded four new school synods that had been formed by the plan of union. This sent the New School into a tizzy, as you can imagine. They organized themselves and set out to, for the 1836 assembly to declare the acts of the 1837 assembly null and void. Hart and Muther tell us what happened next. At the 1838 assembly, scheduled to meet at Seventh Church in Philadelphia, the old school arrived first, took all the seats closest to the front of the church, and locked the doors near the front, thus forcing the New School to find seats in the back. When one of the members from the extended synods tried to have his name recognized as being present for the assembly, the retiring old school moderator from the 1837 assembly bellowed, Sir, we do not know you. At this point, pandemonium broke out. Some new school me members read protests, 
while old school Presbyterians shouted for order. Eventually, the new school took its deliberations to another location, but still became the Presbyterian Church, still claimed to be the Presbyterian Church in the USA. So revival had once again led to a formal split in the church, much along the same lines as before uh, the, um, the American Revolution, uh, and it would remain split uh, throughout the Civil War period <clears throat> and after. So uh, in summary, um, what would happen next is that after the Civil War, um, the Civil War would split Presbyterianism. You have Northern and Southern Presbyterianism. Northern Presbyterianism would further liberalize, actually really quickly, they would start denying things like the exclusivity of Christianity or the historicity of Christ. J. Gary Shemachin, uh, as early as 1929, calls it a new religion entirely, writes, uh, publishes Christianity and liberalism, and eventually has to leave the church. He founds the... Uh, Will uh, a few years uh, prior to being defrocked by the PCUSA, he would um, found Westminster Theological Seminary, and then uh, and eventually form the OPC. Southern Presbyterianism would uh, liberalize a, a lot slower. Um, there would be a continuing church movement, and uh, that movement uh, Michael Bowser will talk to you about uh, when he has uh, his talk on uh, next Sunday. So uh, thank you guys for for your attention. I know this has been a lot to digest, and uh, thank you. <laughs>